They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, let's pray together and ask just the the Lord to lead us through this. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your presence among us this morning. Even as we sang um, in that first song, Lord, that it was Jesus, you, you told your disciples, it's better that I leave you, that the helper may come, that the Holy Spirit may come. And, and God, we now live in that age where you have sent your spirit to dwell with us and among us and inside of us. And Lord, um, we confess that we often forget that. But Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit this morning to do what he does, to teach us, to bring to remembrance all that you've said and done, to convict us of our sin, to lead us towards righteousness, to lift our eyes to see Jesus. We pray that you would help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So I said things are weird this morning. They are kind of weird. Um, So our whole section this morning starts with this caveat of a statement that says, what you're about to read, none of the earliest manuscripts include this. Now, we could just kind of ignore that and move forward, but it's there for a reason. So I thought we could talk about this this morning a little bit um, before we dive into some things that we see from this. So um, what this means is that the, the evidence most strongly points to the fact that this story was not originally a part of the Gospel of John. So when John sits down to write this this gospel account of the life of Jesus, um, from what scholars and architects and theologians can all surmise from studying things is that this section was more than likely not originally part of the gospel of John. And so this morning I want to talk a little bit about what does that mean and how does that influence what we do with this? Because I think it matters. So first half of our morning this morning might feel a little bit like school. Um, it's the kind of school I'm excited about because I love learning about this stuff and talking about this stuff. So if this feels like trudging through like muddy waters for a little bit, it's okay. I hope it ultimately gives you confidence in what you hold in your hands um, as, as being the word of God. And so, okay, so we have this bracketed statement here and this general consensus that this was not part of John's original gospel. And there's kind of five reasons why that's the case. And I'm just gonna kind of throw them your way really quickly. Five reasons why this statement is here. First of all, This story is missing from all of the Greek manuscript copies of the Gospel of John up until the 5th century. So, the life of Jesus is happening in the 1st century, right? Early 1st century. Okay, then this Gospel is being written a little bit later. And it's being copied after we have the Gospel. It's being copied. The the New Testament is largely written in Greek. Um, It's Take, well, it's all written in Greek. And so the, the, the copies of it are going to be originally be in Greek. And so all the copies we have of the Gospel of John up until the 5th century, so almost 500 years later, 400 years later, 
There's, this story is not in any of them. So that's one reason. The second reason is all of the early church fathers throughout church history, they omit this story. They don't talk about it. And in fact, we tend to not even really see it show up in the teaching of the church fathers until about the 10th century. Okay, And if you don't care about church history or know about church history, it's okay. You should care about church history. It's rich. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Um, the people of God and the story of God that he's been telling after the book, after the scriptures close is still epic and awesome. Um, there's so much richness to be had there. And it's important what they do. Like we can learn from them a lot of good things. And so they don't even mention this story until probably about the 10th century. In fact, then if you look at, so the third reason would be this. If you look at the end of John chapter 7, right? Last week we were talking about the Feast of Booths, how there's this special water ceremony that's happening at this feast. And in the midst of this water ceremony, Jesus stands up and says, um, if you thirst, come to me for waters. And anyone who believes in me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. He's very much contextualizing to what's happening, right? So if we were to just skip this section and jump right to 8.12, it would actually flow really nicely, because if you remember, we mentioned this last week as well, one of the other ceremonies that was happening at the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem would have been a special light ceremony. And Jesus is about to say, I'm the light of the world in that next section. So it actually flows really nicely if this story was just not in here. Okay, so that's the third reason. Uh, the fourth reason is when we do start to see this story show up in different manuscript copies of the New Testament, it shows up in all different places. There's three different places it's found in the Gospel of John, and in one of them it's even found in the book of Luke. And so there's not even like consensus of where does this go, who does this belong to, it's just kind of a hodgepodge. And then the fifth reason is that the language and the style of this particular story does not look or sound like John. It uses phrases and language that are just not consistent with the Gospel of John. And so for that, for those five reasons all put together, it's a general consensus that this was probably not part of John's original writing. So, why do some people include it in the scriptures? It's actually been in our Bibles, the kinds of Bibles we hold in our hands now, for about 1,300 years. So why is it here? Let me give you kind of um, the pro-argument for why it would be included or why we should view it as scripture. Here's what that argument would say is this. Since this story in this passage can be shown to be Ancient, meaning it's um, rooted in the oral tradition that supplied the Gospels with its materials. It, it can be shown to be ancient, and it can be shown to be authentic, meaning it is consistent with the character and nature of Jesus and the kinds of things we saw him do in his life. Because of those two reasons, we can use it for edification. We can include it in our scriptures and teach from it with authority. That's kind of the, the pro-argument. In fact, here's uh, another argument as well. This is a quote from um, a, a pastor and commentator right now. He says this, The 1,300-year use and application of this story in the church becomes kind of an ecclesi ecclesial argument, meaning like an argument from church. How the church uses it kind of becomes an argument for how we should use it, is his point. And so in some ways, we're trusting the somewhat limited capacity on the spirit-guided decisions of the church and then behind the scenes of that, the providence of God. So this, here's what this person is saying, is we can look at the past church history and the fact that this, this story has been in our Bibles for 1,300 years, and we can trust to some degree that what's been happening over the course of 1,300 years has been guided by the Holy Spirit of God. And so because of that, we can come to trust that maybe this is the providence of God to actually have this in here, even if it wasn't in the original writings. 
That's kind of the, the pro-argument for we should use it and teach from it with authority. So, but before we kind of decide what to do with this, I want to talk about how do we even get to a place like this. And here's where this might just feel like, why are we even talking about this? But I think this is super important. Because we could just ignore this and walk away, but then what happens when, like, I come in a conversation with somebody and they says, hey, that Bible you trust has things like this where you can't even rely on what you have. Like, we need to be confident in what we have and it being the original writings, it being the, the spirit-filled word of God. And so I think it's important for us to talk about this just for a little bit. Um, so all of this kind of comes under a, a category of something called textual criticism. Can we all just say textual criticism, criticism together? Textual criticism, okay? All right? So it doesn't, you don't need to know all the details of textual criticism. It's a massive field of scholarship with a ton of expertise involved. But essentially what it means is this. It's the studying of ancient manuscripts of the Bible. Study them, critique them, like learn how, they're, how they overlap and how they relate to one another so that we know what to put in our Bibles, so it's basically, how did we get what we have right here, what we hold in our hands, or what we have on our, on our phones? There were people that have studied for a long time all these different manuscripts to determine how we get our printed Bibles. The reason for this is because there's no printing press copy of the Bible until like the 1500s, okay? So before we get to a printing press that can print things with immense accuracy and make copies of them... For the 1,500 years before that, we were relying on people making handwritten copies of manuscripts, right? So John has his original gospel, and then it gets passed on, and it gets copied, and it gets copied for centuries and centuries and centuries in all different parts of the world until eventually we start to collect all these manuscripts and start to study them. This is, this is the process of how we have the scriptures be passed down to us. So, this is what, that's essentially what textual criticism is. And this is not just the Bible. This is all ancient texts. This is what we do with all ancient texts. Philosophy, history, this is how all of it works because there's no printing press until much, much later. So, anything that we have from the early centuries is through this method. Okay? It's all these, all these copies. So, it's not just the scriptures. Now, textual criticism really has nothing to do with actually like critiquing the Bible. That's kind of just... That word might be a little bit misleading. It essentially just means this, thinking critically about the manuscripts that we have and the variations that we have in the copies in order to identify what's original. It's just, so it's just a careful form of study and understanding and thinking critically about the differences and similarities that we see. Are we still, are we still together? Yes? Okay, cool. All right. So the manuscript copies that we have of the New Testament is unbelievable. We don't have an original copy of the Gospel of John. And what's actually crazy about that is that that might actually be proved to be more proof that what we have is original than just simply having the original copy. Because the number of manuscript copies that we have of the Greek New Testament is astonishing. Okay? Let's just, I want to, I want to nerd out for a second, okay? We haven't started nerding out. You're like, we haven't? Okay? We're going to nerd out for a second, Okay? If we look at all the like ancient texts that we have, the philosophy stuff, the history stuff, guys like Plato and Aristotle and Julius Caesar and all, all these different accounts that we all look at, the writings of Homer, we're just like, yeah, look at these writings that happen. All of those come from manuscript copies, okay? The manuscript copies that we have of the Bible blow all of them completely out of the water. 
Like not even close. Let me just give you a couple of examples. So writings of, of Julius Caesar and Tacitus and Plato and Aristotle, those ones respectively have, we have two copies, seven copies, and 10 copies of those, all of them from about eight to 10 centuries after they're originally written is the earliest manuscripts we can find. So track with me for a second. A document's written, let's say first century, okay? We, we then find copies of it, two, five, seven, eight copies of it, 800 years later, okay? That's a, that's a long time, but considered reliable, considered to be a reliable copy that helps us determine what's originally in those writings to the point where we, we teach on them, we, we trust in the history that's written, right? We, we, we believe that that's what was actually written and what actually happened. The next closest is the writings of, uh, is Homer's writing of the Iliad, which we have found 600 copies of 500 years later. So you see how we're kind of closing the gap, right? Those first ones were like 800 to 1,000 years later. This one's, we're finding now copies 500 years from the original writing, and we found about 600 of them. So you can see how that is even more proof. That looks even more reliable that what we have is originally those writings of Homer, right? Now, when we come to the New Testament, are you ready for this? The New Testament has over 5,600 copies dating as early as a, about 100 years after the original writings. So you see how we've closed that gap a lot. And the number of copies we have is, a, is so many comparatively. To where if we're going to trust those writings, those other writings, as being original, as trustworthy of telling us what those documents actually originally said, then how much more should we believe that what we hold here were the original writings of these people? Okay? So that's where we're at with the Scriptures, with the New Testament. Now, the more copies that you have also means the more differences you're going to have, the more variations, right? This is just simple math, I think. Is, this, is that math? I don't know. All right? The more copies you have of something, you're going to have a lot of agreements, but it's also going to uh, in, increase the amount of variations you could have because you just simply have more of them, okay? But the more copies you have, you also have a greater chance of determining, well, what's original, okay? So it kind of goes both ways, more variations, but more similarities. Here's what one scholar said, if the, great, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of errors, it increases proportionally the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is, in truth, remarkably small. Okay? So the field of textual criticism is the more manuscripts you have, even if it increases the number of errors, it also increases your likelihood of being able to figure out what is truly original. And the, the, the margin for error just gets smaller and smaller. So here's what's the most amazing about all of this is there are variations and inconsistencies found across these different manuscripts, copies of the New Testament. That's not anything anyone's hiding from. That is a, a reality, okay? But of all the variations, all the inconsistencies or things that are still somewhat up in the air, of all of those that still exist, not one of them threatens any, Christian doc any core Christian doctrine. None of it. If any of those inconsistencies prove to kind of land one way or the other, those ones that are unsolved still, none of them would do anything to the doctrine of the Christian faith that we hold today. That is astonishing. That's amazing. 
that we hold in our hand a document that was written thousands and thousands of years ago, and it's been so consistent in its copies and how it's passed down that we can be confident that what we hold is communicating to us the heart of God, the theology that God wants us to hold to. So for example, as we come to John chapter 8 today, if this story is included or omitted, it doesn't change the truth found in the gospel of John. doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything about who God is or what He's done and what we believe about Him. So the general result of this whole field of of study and all these discoveries, the general result of all of it is it strengthens the proof of the authenticity of the Scriptures. It actually gives us confidence that the Bible we hold is the Word of God. It is the, as close as we can get to the original writings. We can have confidence in that. And so my hope in talking about this is not to freak us out and to be like, so this story is probably not, so wh- how do we trust anything? How do we just throw this out? How do we know at all what we have is, is reliable in any regard? I, that's not my hope in sharing any of that with you. It's actually, in many ways, to do the opposite, is to give us confidence to look at this stuff and say, wow, look at the scriptures and look at how God has sovereignly passed them down from generation to generation over thousands of years and how remarkably consistent they are in proclaiming to us the God that we follow. And any of the inconsistencies that remain are small and really make no difference in regard to the doctrine we hold to. That's incredible. It should give us confidence. So, John chapter 8. Most scholars are in agreement the story is not a part of John's gospel, but that it was added centuries later. Yet, it's also generally considered to be an event that probably did happen in Jesus' life. So, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? If it wasn't originally in John's writing, but a lot of historians tend to think this is probably something that happened in Jesus' life, what do we do with it? Well, let me give you my convictions. My conviction is this, is that we cannot teach this story with authority on its own. I I just don't believe that we can based off of what we know and what we can study and learn about John's gospel. We can conclude that it's probably not originally part of his gospel. I don't know that we can with confidence bring this passage and have it stand alone and teach with authority over us because we just don't know. Most likely, it seems like it wasn't part of John. The other thing is this. I don't believe we can let it make its own contributions to doctrine or theology. What I think we can do is I think we can use it in collaboration with other passages in somewhat of a secondary and supportive role, but not in a way where it acts independent or in a place of authority over us. Does that make sense? So, but here's the thing about John chapter 8. You read the story. A lot of us are familiar with the story. It's a famous story. We want this story to be true so badly because it is incredible, is it not? This story of, of this woman seemingly just being, it's almost as if she's set up. She's somehow caught in the act and she's dragged in front of all these people that are surrounding her and accusing her and ready to stone her and kill her. And then they turn to Jesus and Jesus just has this beautiful moment of compassion and forgiveness and dismisses. Like, it's just, it's amazing. And we, we want it to be true so badly because it's awesome. 
But we can't determine truth just based off of our desires, right? This is something I try to teach my kids all the time, okay? When my, when my children disobey, sometimes there's consequences. Sometimes we've got to take away dessert, right? Sometimes it just means, hey, you haven't been listening, so no dessert. And the moment I say no dessert, my children just flip out because dessert is their favorite, right? It's your favorite too. I know it is. We love dessert. Dessert's amazing. It's this treat. It's the best part of the meal, if we're honest. My kids love dessert. It's the thing that gets them through dinner. Is If I eat my dinner, will I get dessert? Just great negotiators, right? We've all learned this skill. So when I say no dessert, they flip out. And their line of reasoning to plead with me is, but dad, I want dessert. And I'm like, I understand that. That's like literally why I took it away. But no, but dad, no, dad, I, I really, really, no, but dad, dad, listen for a second. I really want dessert. Like, can I have dessert? No, you lost dessert. You disobeyed me, so you, I took away dessert. Okay, but dad, really quick, I want dessert. Like, can that, does that change anything for you? Could, just to let you know I really want it? No, right? I'm trying to teach my kids that just because you want something doesn't mean that you get it. Doesn't mean it lines up with reality, Okay. We can want this story to be real and true all we want, but ultimately our desire doesn't do anything about it. Right? It might be true. It might have happened. But our desires can't take center stage to be like, well, I, I want it to be true, therefore it will be. No, that's just not the way the world works. It's not the way truth works. But the beauty and the glory of the Jesus that we see in this story is as real as it gets. We want this story to be so true because we look at this Jesus and we want that Jesus to be real. We want that kind, merciful, compassionate Jesus to be real. And church, he is. Regardless of whether we have this story or not, the Jesus we see in it is real. He's actually like that. And the reason we know that is because the scriptures tell us that. Even if we don't have this story, we look at all the other scriptures and it tells us this Jesus is real. And I think that's why this story has been in our Bibles for 1,300 years. It's because we look at the character and nature of Jesus and we're like, this seems to be like him. So what I want to do this morning is just spend the last few minutes that we have looking at this Jesus from other scriptures. Okay? I want to look at three things. One thing we see in this story is we see Jesus' authority to forgive and this compassion that drives him to do so. And this is something we see all throughout the scriptures. If you have your Bible, you can flip to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 says this about Jesus, very simply, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So we see in Ephesians chapter 1 that we sinners get to have redemption by his blood. And we get to have the forgiveness of our sins. Why? All because he is rich in grace. That's what we see in this story. That's what Ephesians tells us all about. That this is the Jesus that we see. Right? This is what the story tries to tell for us is we see a woman that's caught in sin and she's guilty according to the law. The law says to not commit adultery and that those that do are invoking the penalty of breaking the law. They're worthy of death. 
according to God's law. This is the, what the measures of sin are. What, what the wages of sin are is death. So adultery, she's guilty, right? If we're to look at the story, in the story we see a woman that's clearly guilty of sin. She was literally caught in the act. Now there's also lots of inequality that's happening in the story. You ask yourself, where's the man, right? Why is he just, is he, was she set up? Did he just run faster and got away? Like what's going on here? It, it seems to be a, a whole setup of Jesus, right? So this woman is ushered in and we know that she's guilty. But what's going to be Jesus' response to somebody that's caught in sin? They're essentially asking Jesus to choose between justice and mercy. Which will you choose, Jesus, when a sinner stands before you, clearly guilty of breaking your law and deserves justice? Will you uphold justice? Oh, but, but then how does that go with your reputation of, of being this compassionate guy who heals and claims to forgive sins and hangs out with sinners and tax collectors and seems to be a, a compassionate and gracious and merciful guy? What, what will you choose between? Will you choose justice or will you choose mercy when faced with a guilty sinner? Justice or mercy? In fact, this is a dilemma we feel to this day. This is a question that's being lobbed to all of us regularly in our culture. What will you do? How will you respond to someone who's clearly guilty of doing something foolish, of doing something hateful or wrong? Will you side with justice or will you side with mercy? Right, we've seen this, this narrative of this idea of, of, of something that we've, we've called cancel culture in our society, right? This, this basic idea of someone does something that's wrong and evil and is therefore, they're, they're therefore now worthy of being canceled, of, of losing their influence, of losing their voice because what they've done is wrong, right? Cancel them so that they don't have their influence anymore. And in, and in moments like this, every one of us, Regardless of if we have skin in the game or not, we're all being faced with the question, hey, which will you side with, justice or mercy? And here's what I think. I think we, I think as followers of Jesus, we feel this tension in us when we're lobbed with this question because we recognize that there are people that have done things that make them worthy of losing their influence. Some people have done things and said things that are so evil and so wrong that, yeah, they shouldn't have that platform anymore. We, we feel this idea of like, yeah, that was wrong. But we equally feel this pull towards, wait a minute, but my entire worldview is based on the fact that I am that person and yet God sent his son Jesus to die in my place to pay the price of what I deserved and now lavish me with mercy. So what do I do? I, I, I think that what this person did was wrong and, and they, therefore they probably shouldn't have the influence that they have anymore. But then at the same time, like, I could easily do that and I know that God wants to show mercy and should I show mercy? Like, what do I do? How do I choose between justice and mercy? This is the very question this story poses. What will God choose? When he has a sinner in front of him who's clearly guilty, will Jesus choose justice or will he choose mercy? I have a friend who recently said this. He said, cancel culture is what happens when you have a faith system with no atonement. 
Right? When you have a, a moral system, a, a justice system, a law, but you have no means of atonement. So the atonement is lose everything. But in the gospel, we see something a bit different. In Jesus' response to sinners, we see something a bit different, and we see it from Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 says this, starting in verse 23. It says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, everyone has broken God's law, is clearly guilty. Everyone's caught in the act. No one has any excuse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, for those who believe, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To sum all that up, saying this, what God has done in sending Jesus to die in the place of sinners, He has upheld justice and poured out mercy. So the question of justice or mercy, God through Jesus says yes. Justice and mercy. The justice falls on Jesus. So what Romans is telling us, we're all guilty. And God is committed to upholding justice. He's not an unjust God. But instead of pouring out his wrath on the deserving sinner, for those that will believe in Jesus, he will pour out all of his wrath on Jesus in their place, upholding justice to say, the sinner deserves this wrath. But instead of it falling on them, it will fall on my son in their place. He upholds justice and then gives to the undeserving sinner mercy. Grace, compassion, forgiveness, redemption. This is the heart of Jesus. It says, so that he would show himself to be just and the justifier. Justifier means he's the one that declares us to be righteous, even though we have no righteousness. He's just and the justifier, the one that shows mercy. This is what Romans tells us. This is the character of Jesus. It's what we see in the cross. And if we were to enter ourselves back into this story and we were to ask ourselves the question that Jesus does, let him who's without sin cast the first stone, who's the only person in the story who fits that criteria? It's Jesus. If anyone could have picked up a stone to throw it at the guilty sinner, it was Jesus himself, the one without sin. If anyone could condemn us and take us out on the spot for our sins. It's Jesus. He's worthy to do so. And yet, instead, he becomes the one who has the stones thrown at him. And Romans 3 says that in these moments of mercy, God is able to pass over former sins because he looks forward to the cross where he knows, I will pour out my wrath on that sin on Jesus. Jesus offers forgiveness 
but it comes at a cost. It's through the shedding of his own blood in order to uphold justice. And so for us that believe in Jesus, our, forgive, our forgiveness doesn't come because we're not guilty. It doesn't come because Jesus just kind of winks at us and he's like, don't worry about it. It's all good. I'm not that interested in obedience. Your sins are not really a big deal. No, that's not how we get our forgiveness. We get our forgiveness by Jesus saying, no, your sins are a way bigger deal than you think they are, but I will come down and receive your punishment instead. That's how we get forgiveness. It's through the shedding of Jesus' blood on our behalf. Some of you know the place of being caught in your sin, of being caught red-handed, Some of you know that feeling of, of getting that red light photo camera on you, and you're just like, there's nothing I can say. My license plate is there. My face is there. I just, I can't get around it. It's, yep, it's me. Some of you know that feeling, though, on a deeper level of having your sin exposed and revealed to the point where there, there's just, there really is no hiding. You and I stand before God like that, guilty, caught red-handed, no escaping, deserving of death, and Jesus, upholding justice and desirous to show us mercy, comes to receive what we deserve. And he takes what we deserve and then gives us what only he deserves. This is the beauty of this story, but it's a truths we see in the rest of Scripture. Another one is this. Not only does Jesus have the authority to forgive, he then announces to the forgiven no condemnation. Right? This is what we see proclaimed in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this, There is therefore, because of the work of Christ, there is therefore now, right now, where you stand, sit today, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have trusted, repented of their sins, now followed Jesus, trust in who He is and what He's done, you are now in Christ you have a covering. It says, if that's you, there is right now no condemnation for your sin. No punishment, no wrath, no karma coming at some point. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. All right, which is the question we see posed in this story when he says, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And he says, neither do I. I think one of the reasons we long for this story to be true is because we know what it feels like to be a person like this woman. We know the feeling of guilt. We know the place of shame, of being judged, of being condemned and labeled. We know the haunting memories that are on repeat in our head of things that we've done, situations we've put ourselves in that we're ashamed of. And we wish with every part of our being that we could just go back somehow and change our decisions or stop something from happening. We know this place of just being laid out, guilty, ashamed, when it seems like everyone else is around pointing fingers and condemning. 
And Satan's desire for you is to put you in that place and keep you there at all times. To say you deserve to be there. But Jesus has a few things to say about that. The first one we just talked about is that for those that will believe in him, he receives your condemnation. He receives it on the cross. This is what the cross was all about. Receiving the condemnation for your sins, which is the wrath of God. If Jesus received all of it, how much of it is left for us? Not a trick question. Zero. If Jesus said, that's the work I'm doing, and then he says when he's done doing it, it's finished, it means it, it is finished. There's none left for you. We tend to think, oh, there's a little bit of wrath and condemnation, like just a tiny bit left over for me at some point. The truth that Jesus declares from the cross is there's none left for you. No condemnation for you. It's finished. But he also does something else. He, he dismisses the accusers. He, he, he sends them away. He, he hurls them down. This is what Revelation tells us. Revelation chapter 12. Listen to this. Talking about our great enemy, Satan, whose, na- whose very name means the accuser, says this, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him, the accuser, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. This is a great promise of Revelation chapter 12, that through the blood of Jesus, God himself throws down the accuser, dismisses him. The very accuser that stands, tells us, stands before God day and night, accusing his people of their sins. So here's the picture. We have an accuser who goes to God and says, let me remind you of all the failures, all of the sins, all of the disgusting thoughts and words and actions that this one did that claims to be a follower of you. Do you remember all of their sins and all that they've done? What this is declaring to us is that through the cross of Christ, God throws down the accuser and says, you have no more voice. You have no place here. My people have conquered the accuser. How? Through the blood of the lamb. Through Jesus receiving the payment for those sins. Because what the accuser is accusing, he's right. We are wretched. We are evil. But God's answer is, oh, oh, but I upheld justice for those sins. I, those, they've already been paid for. So what else you got? It says we, we overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. You know what's amazing about God and his redemption? is the things we're most ashamed of in our story, when God gets his hands on them and redeems them through the blood of Jesus, they don't become things we're ashamed of anymore. They become weapons for the movement of the gospel. This is why your story matters so much. So many of us are ashamed of our stories. 
And I understand I'm, I'm with you in parts of that. There's parts of my story I'm ashamed of. I don't, I don't like it. I wish I could change it. And yet the power of the gospel is to take things we're most ashamed of and see that the glory of God shines brighter in those moments. Maybe brightest in those things we're most ashamed of. This is what God does. So the word of our testimony, our very lives that we live, become a testimony to the redemption of God's powerful grace. And it's one of the ways we conquer the accuser. So when he comes to us and says, hey, God remembers this one, you, might, you, you better watch out. Better wait for the lightning bolt because it's coming. Or you, you, better, you better wait for the moment of failure because it's coming. God's just waiting for the right moment. We say, hey, I remember I did that. But I also remember something that happened long before that and it was the cross. And Jesus paid for that. And he's not ashamed of my story now. He's using my story, even that very thing you're reminding me of, for his glory. And then the last thing Jesus has to say about this is to us, he calls us to lift up our eyes. Again, in Romans chapter 8. says this, verse 31, what then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen to this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? Who can bring any charge against God's chosen people? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall nakedness or distress or persecution or famine or tribulation or danger or sword? He says, no, nothing can separate us. Who, who is to condemn it? It is as if Jesus is coming to us in our guilt and in our shame, feeling like we're surrounded by accusers, and he lifts up our eyes to say, my child, where are your accusers? Who can bring any charge against you? I've justified you. The creator of the universe, the one with all power and all authority, I've justified for you. I've paid for your sins. I died in your place. No one has more authority than me. Who can accuse you? Who can condemn you? No one. It's as if he stoops to us in that very place and says, look up and look up with confidence because I'm for you. So we see these things from Scripture that Jesus has the authority to forgive, that he announces no condemnation. We'll end with this one. Something else we see 
In Titus chapter 2, we see that the forgiveness of Jesus leads to holiness. Titus chapter 2, if you have it, turn there. Here's what it says. For the grace of God has appeared. Right? The mercy of God, the cross of Christ, the immense riches of God's grace, it's appeared in Jesus, bringing salvation for all people. But here's what else grace does, training us to renounce ungodliness and the worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, we tend to think that Jesus says something like this, sin no more, then I will no longer condemn you. That's how we think Jesus probably operates. Jesus says, you got, that's way backwards. Jesus says, I don't condemn you, therefore go and sin no more. And again, it's not because your sins aren't a big deal and God's just like, hey, whatever, I don't condemn you. No, it's because of the work of Christ, because of the grace of God, because of the work he's done, how he's upheld justice through the cross. Because of all that, the follower of Jesus, he says to you, I don't condemn you. Your sins are paid for. Therefore, go and sin no more. We tend to think Jesus operates the opposite. That Yeah, he welcomes us in and he forgives us, but then he says, all right, don't sin anymore and then I won't condemn you. No. He says, I, I don't condemn you. Therefore, pursue righteousness, pursue holiness. But what Titus 2 is telling us is there's no holiness without grace first. You try to just be obedient to God's law. You try to just be good and holy and righteous on your own. What it produces is pride hypocrisy, and a whole lot of danger for anybody that's around you. In other words, it produces a lot of unrighteousness. Without first a profound experience of God's grace, there can't be holiness. But holiness flows from grace. So he says the grace of God not only saves us, but it trains us for righteousness which means it's the very fuel and the power and the motivation for following Jesus, which means it's not up to you. It's not up to your willpower. It's not up to how obedient you are or how good you are, or how kind you are or how forgiving you are or how even-tempered you are. No, your obedience is dependent on the grace of God. It gives us the power. So it's not like the Bible just comes in and says, hey, honor God with your bodies. Good luck. No. The grace of God empowers it. It's where the logic of the New Testament now says, hey, your bodies have been bought with a price. The price was the precious blood of Christ. You belong to him. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The grace of God empowers the obedience. It's not just be generous with your money because that's good. No, it's look to Christ, your Savior, who though he was rich became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. You have an eternal inheritance waiting for you. Therefore, be generous. The grace of God empowers the obedience. We could do this all day long with all different commands of God. 
The grace of God leads to holiness. Forgiveness comes first. So this story is a beautiful story, but the truth is whether we have this story or not, whether it actually happened or not, ultimately, it doesn't change the Jesus we follow. Because we've just looked at other scriptures, through Romans, through Titus, through Ephesians. This is who Jesus is. He's the Jesus that comes to us caught in our sin and says yes to justice and mercy and forgives us, tells us to lift up our eyes and say, who can bring a charge against my people? No one. Therefore, walk in holiness. Follow me because I'm the greatest thing ever. I'm the best Savior there is. You can trust me. I'm good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you see us right now in this moment. Even if we were to just look at this story as an illustration, God, you see those of us that feel like we're righteous enough to throw stones. And Lord, you see those of us that feel like the woman caught, accused, condemned, alone. And so, Jesus, we just want to give you praise. We want to thank you for the Savior that you are, that you would come down and trade places. That you, the one who was worthy to wipe us all out for our rebellion and our sin, instead chose a cross to be ridiculed and mocked and scorned and hated, hated and bloodied and bruised and to become like a sinner to save us. What mercy you have which we say thank you. We don't deserve, we are not worthy, but God, we thank you. Lord, I pray right now over the people of Gospel City Church that you would dismiss the voice of the accuser. That right now in this moment, as we respond to you in worship, God, that we would respond as redeemed, free, forgiven people. Would you dismiss the voice of the accuser over us? Would you help us proclaim to ourselves, to those voices, that no one can bring a charge against me because God has redeemed me? And would you give us confidence? Would you lift up our eyes so that we become a people that believe the gospel? Believe that it is finished. And would you give us the power to walk in obedience? We thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.